I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Poverty, homelessness, crime, drug and alcohol addiction, racism, homophobia, environmental destruction, and climate change. Serious threats to democracy itself. There's a whole bunch of bad things. Is there anything these seemingly disparate, apparently unrelated, serious challenges all have in common? Well, our guest today, economics professor emeritus Michael Zweig, argues what these problems have in common is their roots. Yes, common roots. They're part of a whole that shares the centrality of the productive system and the reality of social class. That's beneath all those issues. He argues the deep lines of division that separate us and blunt, blunt our commitment to and effectiveness in achieving common objectives can be traced to specific turning points in our history. And yet, there is reason for cautious optimism. As we begin a critical election year, employing a solid commitment perseverance and hard work done with an informed, steady focus, there are strategies he offers for political action as well as movement building and organizing that we might add to the important and impressive labor and other successes of the past recent years. Michael Zweig's new book is titled Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Michael Zweig is the Emeritus uh, Professor of Economics and Founding Director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at State University of New York at Stony Brook. He has a long history of social activism combined with scholarly work and has published widely in professional and general journals, including The American Economist, Working Class Studies, Labor History, and The Nation, of course. His work has been featured in New York Times, Democracy Now! and Bill Myers' PBS programs. Zweig's previous books include The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, Religion and Economic Justice, What's Class Got to Do With It? American Society in the in the 21st Century. And in 2014, he received the Working Class Studies Association's Award for Lifetime Contributions to the Field. And of course, Michael Zweig remains active in his union, United University Professions. He lives in New York in the east end of Long Island, uh, where for over 30 years he has been a volunteer in the Southhold Fire Department. I do not know that town, but I'll take your word for it. And uh, volunteering is a great way to be a citizen. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Good to be with you. One of the great labor leaders of the 2020s is Sarah Nelson. She's made an amazing uh, splash and a big difference. She's president of the Association of Flight Attendants, and she says in Michael Zweig's new book, this deep and rich study challenges us to understand how only radical liberation and solidarity can achieve a truly just future. Imagine achieving a truly just future. Well, we can't give up on it. The aspirations are just too important. And to the forward, the forward to this book is from the Reverend William Barber II, an impressive figure in the movement for justice in the 21st century. Now, not everyone knows about Moral Mondays or Reverend Barber. Tell how, why is it that he thought your book is important in the context of his work? 
Talk about your connection to Barbara, the Poor People's Campaign, and the relevance of this book to him and to Moral Mondays. Well, Reverend Barber is, I think, one of the principal and most uh, significant leaders in the social justice movement in the United States uh, today. Uh, he is from North Carolina. He was the president of the North Carolina NAACP. He had a congregation, a ch- uh, church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, and founded the Moral Monday movements in uh 2012, 2013, in North Carolina to bring pressure on the state legislature there uh, to uh, do progressive things and not do reactionary things and cut Medicaid and do other horrible stuff that uh, uh, was on the agenda down there. And when he developed this Moral Monday, uh, it was an idea of uh, bringing together a whole disparate uh, communities of people who were challenging or who were threatened by uh, the systems of power that uh, were just bringing reaction and and, uh, terrible policies to North Carolina. So Reverend Barber uh, brought uh, a message of resistance and moral resistance and organizational resistance to this reactionary development in North Carolina. And when I heard about his work there, I thought it was very significant and very interesting, and I went down to North Carolina, and I did a training with him, met him, talked to him, and uh, we began to de- uh, develop some working relationship. And when he started to develop the uh, Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival in 2016, 2017, uh, I got very interested and excited about that possibility and have been working with the Poor People's Campaign here in New York and I'm now on the uh, statewide coordinating committee of the Poor People's Campaign in New York and a coordinator on Long Island. So it's a, it's a very important movement which brings together all array of social movements around racism, around poverty, around environmental devastation, around militarism and the military budget, and uh, the recognition that to challenge those things and to understand them deeply, we need a moral revival in this country that changes the moral narrative and the moral and ethical and value systems that we bring to our movements. And uh, all of that is uh, material and outlook that I found Mm -hmm. very attractive. And uh, we hit it off and we've been working together. Very nice. Yeah, he, he, his movement is impressive. It's, it's, uh, disappointing more people don't know about him but uh, uh, the the Reverend William Barber the second and I've had his uh, his partner Liz Theo Harris on the show a couple times That's as right. well it's it's a powerful and important movement and it ties things together and you know it's so easy to get frustrated that there's you know there's the climate change movement and you know anti-racism and anti-war but it does connect. It does connect. And as the saying goes, in union there is strength. So working together, uh, well, which is what you have been doing with uh, the Reverend Barber uh, and lots of other people, it makes a, a difference. And I'm old enough to remember when the late 60s, what a nice feeling it was. It was a good feeling. of We had some real heady optimism for a better, more humane future. And so that was the late 60s. But then in 1971, there was something called the Powell Memo, which was direct 
uh, antithesis of the optimism that we were having. And it was a pushback, a specific pushback that the Powell menu uh, kind of kicked off and gained strength and complexity ever since. Again, a lot of people don't know about the Powell menu. How significant has that been? And, and in what ways was that a, a designed to be a pushback against the optimism that we had? I write about the Powell Memorandum and its uh, effect in the context in which it arose in uh, this new book, uh, Class, Race, and Gender, uh, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And I write about it because uh, today... For young people, especially coming up in the movements of today, uh, it's hard to imagine what the late 60s and early 1970s was like in the way of a broad social movement that challenged the power of corporate uh, elites, challenged the power of the military in a way which really dominated the news and dominated the the, the character of the time. That uh, period was a period in which uh, sort of the, the ruling class in this country and the capitalist uh, elites in this country blinked. And they, even with Richard Nixon, developed very progressive policies. So yes. We have the OSHA uh, or Occupational Safety and, Act, uh, Safety and Health Act, uh, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. All that happened in the Nixon administration. We had the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and the Housing Rights Act in 1968 and the Civil Rights Law of 64. All of that was in the context of very, very powerful and very public social movements. And whatever you were in, if you were in the peace movement around Vietnam or in the civil rights movement or the women's movement or the uh, gay and liberation movement that was coming up in the late 60s, early 70s, all of those movements had their own character, but each one understood itself to be part of a broad uh, rebellion that was going on against the power of corporate elites. And it's hard to imagine these days when corporate power is so strongly entrenched that it, there was a time when we had, and not too long ago, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, in the lifetime of many people, there was a time when there was a broad, recognized social movement that deeply challenged the power of corporate elites and actually effected tremendous positive change. Now, what uh, Lewis Powell did, he was a, a white shoe lawyer, lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, corporate uh, elite lawyer, and he wrote a memorandum for the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, mm -hmm. in which he said, look, we are in trouble, the, cor the corporate elite, the capitalist class. We are in trouble because we face all of this opposition in every part of society, in the universities, in the church pulpits, in the schools, in the union movement, the labor movement, the women's movement, all these different institutions. We're on the defensive, and that has got to change. We have to do something. And what was significant about the Powell Memorandum was that he argued that it was not enough just to act in terms of your own industry. You can't just defend the oil industry through the oil producers' uh -huh. uh, co cooperative. You can't just protect the auto industry if you're an auto executive. You have to protect the system as a whole. 
because it is the system that is being challenged. And it was true. Yes. The system was being challenged in all of these different elements of social movements, and we all understood that we were challenging that system and that we were sort of comrades no matter what particular part of the movement we were in. That's, so what Powell was doing was he was calling the, the, the capitalist class to respond as a class, not just as an industrial elite in this industry or that industry, not just this banking sector, not just this commercial interest. No, no, we have to all get together and push back to save the system and to articulate the system. And that's what happened in the 1970s. That's where you got the Heritage Foundation. That's mm. where you got the uh, American Legislative Exchange Council that yeah, develops very reactionary legislation for states yes, and shares it around. That's where you got the Federalist Society. All that happened in the 1970s explicitly to bring the power of capital to the fore and to push back against all of these social movements. So that Powell Memorandum was extremely important. And the kind of work that we're doing in the Poor People's Campaign is to try to respond by bringing a whole uh, movement approach to pushing back on the power of the corporate elites in this country. And that's what my book is about. That's what uh, so many of our young activists are looking to do and want to do. And the book is there as a resource to try to look into how does all this work and what are we really dealing with and what's the history and how can we do something about it right now. That's what I'm trying to do in that book. And I do think it's interesting how some of the younger people these days, I don't know, Generation Z, Y, I don't know what the heck they're called, but they can sometimes fantasize and romanticize about that era. But to be perfectly honest, it was pretty darn heady. We really thought we were at the beginning of something uh, significant, and we were. And it's still those particular values. And one can, as you describe it, uh, Michael, the uh, uh, pushback, they felt a serious need for a pushback. And there was a need for a, a pushback as far as they're concerned, because you're right, we, I, I suppose I would think of them sort of as a moral majority, quite frankly, even though we didn't have their title, were pushing for a more moral uh, uh, system. And they got kind of freaked out, understandably, uh, and, and, and pushed back against it. And, and for those who may have just tuned in, having a fun conversation about the roots of so many of these movements, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Michael Zweig, who's got a new book, Class, Race, and Gender. Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Uh, Michael Zweig was an emeritus uh, professor of economics and uh, done a lot of uh, scholarly and active stuff. And some, oftentimes uh, they are one in this, well, not one in the same, but, you know, if, if you look at the facts, if you look at knowledge, if you look at history, you know, there are some things that one can't help but take away from it. And that's one reason why so many on the right don't want us to learn history these days and don't want us to learn what works. And uh, our guest today uh, knows a bit about what works. And right or not, I mean, perceptions become reality. When I was growing up, it was widely perceived that there was a large middle class 
I don't know how much that's true. You have some thoughts about that. But those days when, when there was a perception of a wide and large and solid middle class when, you know, one person could be working and somebody else staying home and taking care of the kids and they could afford uh, to live like that. Uh, the U.S. is generally characterized as a middle class society. It actually, according, this is interesting, and you've pointed out to me here that over 60% of Americans belong to the working class, and you call it the country's best kept secret. I mean, back then we assumed it had. Say a bit more about that. In the 1920s and 1930s, 100 years ago, basically, when the labor movement was expanding, when the political uh, situation in, in this country and around the world was pretty yeasty with rebellion and with uh, yeah. resistance, it was clearly understood that there was a working class. We lived in a class society, and there was a capitalist class, and they were characterized in cartoons as great big fat uh, right. people with cigars out of their mouths and top hats yep. and big vests that were bulging with uh, you know dollar bills coming out. And Scrooge McDuck had three cubic acres of money that he could dive into. <laughs> you know, there, there was, it was it was clearly understood in this country that there was a class division between the working class that needed to organize and a capitalist class that ran the captains of industry that ran the society. In the Cold War that followed World War II, part of the reaction to that militance of the labor movement and of uh, uh, socialist uh, thinking in this country was to wipe out any discussion of class. And that's when we started to think of the America. America is a middle class society and class started to be a question of income where you had some rich people, yes, and you had poor people, yes, but most people were in the middle right. between this fringe of rich and poor. And that way of thinking about class in society led to an erasure of the existence of the working class, and you erased also the capitalist class. So there wasn't anybody to fight, and there wasn't anybody to ally with, because everybody was in this broad middle class. And what I'm arguing, and what I argued in that book, The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, is that we are not a middle class society. This is a country where the dominant class, the most numerous class, is the working class, by which I mean people who go to work, do their job under more or less close supervision. They don't have much control over the content or the pace of that work. Oh, for sure. And uh, that's about 63% of the, of the working labor force. Now, the, the, often we think about uh, the working class, if you want to think about it, as industrial workers, lunch bail workers mm -hmm. that go through factory gates. Those workers exist, but, you know, they were never the majority of the working population. And the working class in this country includes an awful lot of home health care workers, building security workers, uh, truck drivers, uh, nurses, uh, teachers, uh, you know, just ordinary people who would do their work uh, and don't have a whole lot of control over it. They're taking supervision. They get hired in, and here's your job, do it. That's the majority of the population in this country. And since class is a question of power to me, not a question of income or lifestyle, power is a relationship. Somebody has 
no power or relatively little power because other people have more power. So the working class is in relationship to a class that has the power to control what they do, and that class is the capitalist class. And so we are in a situation where in order to build the social movements that we have going now and to get them properly focused and to understand who are our friends and who are our enemies in this struggle, it's important to understand that this is a working class majority society and a capitalist class that basically runs the show. So if we have complaints about how things are going, the complaints need to be directed up towards that ruling or that capitalist or that uh, elite class and not pointed down to the poor or to the immigrants or to uh, Mm -hmm. stupid workers or any other kind of way that you want to formulate this. That is what I'm trying to get across here in this book, Uh, the working class majority, and now this new book, uh, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism, that's what I'm trying to get at, and why does that matter, mm. and how does that unfold in connecting all of these struggles that we were talking about before into one movement, and then have that movement uh, grounded in a morality that is all in a, in a, in a ethical values that are grounded in the working class, not the capitalist class. Wow, interesting. One can see how useful it has been to. Uh, erase the notion of a working class because uh, if people feel, you know, if people sense correctly that there is class division, that it's a power struggle, uh, and that one had, you know, a small group has the power and a large group doesn't have the power, that's dangerous to the uh, system itself for sure. And so to to have people believe that, oh, that's not me, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not in the working class. I'm in the middle class, and and you know, as a way of uh, uh, smoothing over the the rough edges and uh, and and convincing people and uh, taking away some of the power that the class consciousness has had and really has had. I mean, I'm a big fan of Gene Debs. You know, we had uh, class consciousness before, as you say, before the Second World War, there was significant uh, uh, class consciousness. And the fact that they've been, they, yeah, have been able to kind of erase that, it's a challenge that we have to face. And, you know, in in older European countries, the U.S. lack of a class consciousness is something foreign. In America, people, I do find this fascinating, and, and a lot of my uh, friends you know, share this too, that people in, with lower incomes who don't have any power, really, often enthusiastically support the wealthy Republican guys. What would otherwise be a working class often buys into the line that's been fed to them over and over again, that the richest are the wealth creators. Yeah, wealth creators. What a line. I don't know whoever thought of that, but he or she deserved his money or her money. Uh, What does this perception of a class-free society and this political dynamic do in terms of addressing the problems caused by this unfettered capitalist system? Well, there's a couple of elements to this. I think that uh, the idea of the, the the capitalist class are the wealth creators. Yeah. Just turns it completely upside down. They're the wealth takers. Yes. The people who actually create the wealth 
are, are the people who go to work yes. and do the work of creating the jobs, I mean, creating the products and creating what gets sold. That's who's creating things. Now, it's true that the capitalists organize the production. That's what they do. That's their job. That's their function in, in our society. But that doesn't actually create anything. They facilitate. They bring together people who do the creating. But everything that's created by working people initially is owned by the businesses that they work for. So the idea that workers uh, owe, owe their um, allegiance to some elite that, yeah. that deigns to give them work, well, I'm sorry, that isn't quite right. That's upside down. It's like saying the slave owners supported the slaves. Now, of course, in, in in Florida these days, that's something that has a beat. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in in that slavery wasn't so bad because after all, the slaves got fed. You know, hey, what do you want? They they, they actually learned a trade, their skill that they, that they could use. Well, all that was done in order to empower and to enrich the slave owners. That's not too hard for people to understand. The same thing is true in feudal society. You had serfs working the land, yeah. giving up, uh, you know their uh, allegiance, but also their their product to the aristocracy. Well, who depended on whom? You know, the, the, and th those are questions that I think we need to unpack, and we can unpack them through understanding the centrality of production and how production works how surplus gets created, who gets the surplus, how is that surplus used. That's all stuff that I think is important to understand because a society that can't produce for its people will die off. So production is the centerpiece of any society, no matter how it's organized. If it doesn't produce, it doesn't continue to exist. So production is the center then that's why I think we need to start with how does production operate and then classes arise out of that. And then we're off to the races with understanding politics and understanding culture and religion and all these things, which in one way or another have to support the organization of production, or at least not disrupt it. And that's where the question of politics and, and political strength comes in. And I'll just uh, add on one last point here. Sure. We talk about, you know, this rise of reaction in this country and that there are working people, working class people who support it, yes. who vote for it. Yes. Well, that's true. But where does that outlook come from? Where, mm -hmm. does that, where do those policies come from? They come from capital. They come from the ruling elites. They don't come from the working class that creates that political myth. They, you know, workers are, are, are trained in some way and are and coaxed into uh, buying into that, but that doesn't mean that they've created it or that they're responsible for it. And that, I think, is an important point for the way we do politics, because it's often I hear, oh, those workers, especially those white workers, they're just hopeless. Forget about them, because they're the problem. No, they're not the problem. The problem is... The, the you know the the Donald Trumps and the problem is the Bill Bars and the problem is the uh, people who are in the elites that create this and 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 the Koch brothers and all the financial uh, sources that that endorse this 
that pay for its uh, propagation, those are the people who are responsible. That's where we have to go uh, to challenge and not go and point the finger down and say, oh, these, these white workers, and incidentally, increasingly black and Hispanic mm. workers as mm. well, mm-hmm. are, are buying into this. They're not the problem. The problem is the capitalists who are creating all of this stuff and have those values. Now, we talk about values in, in, uh, in the Poor People's Campaign. We talk about a, a moral revival. Well, it used to be when the labor movement was strong and when these social movements were strong, there was a basic set of values that relied on mutual aid, mm. that we were all in this together, that we were cooperating, that we had to help one another. We were not in this alone. You are not alone. You work together. You're in common with other people in a union or in a social organization or in a movement. And along comes after the Powell Memorandum, mm-hmm. and actually very consciously after the Powell Memorandum in the 1970s, a completely different moral narrative. The moral narrative becomes, who do you sleep with? The moral narrative becomes, make as much money as you can, because that's how you'll know that you're valued. It becomes, you're in it on your own. You don't need all this government coming in or all these other people telling you what to do. Just make it on your own. That is a capitalist value. That's a norm that is destructive of the communities that working class people need and actually live through. And that moral revival is part of the movement that we have to build, which changes the way we think about what's right and what's wrong, what's important ethically and what's not. And as Reverend Barber, uh, you know, likes to say, uh, you know, there's eight passages in the Bible that you can point to that have something to do with homosexuality. There's 2,000 passages in the Bible that have to do with poverty. How come we're only looking at these eight and not these 2,000? <laughs> well, that's a class question. Yes. And I think that we need to do more to bring power and knowledge and capacity to working people in this country to challenge that corporate power. And with that increased worker power will come increased opportunities for uh, civil rights, for racial justice, for women's justice for international justice, for peace, and all that, the, all that unfolds out of challenging the power of capital because all those problems have their origins in the power of capital in our society. The power of capital to divide people, to convince people, and, uh, you know, as, as you describe, you know, being together, depending on one another, the term populism, it's amazing to me how it's been flipped around and and manipulated by the you know the right wing that that is you know the biggest champion of the you know separation of the classes and and keeping uh, the few powerful on top of things because they used to be prairie populism which i'm sure you know about in the 20th century uh where you know people out the West uh, stuck together and worked together, but they have manipulated it so much. It sounds like you're trying to say something there. Go right ahead, Michael. Well, populism in historically in this country, going back to the late 19th century and into the 20th century, yeah. farmer labor movements, yes, and uh, those uh, uprisings that were called populist, what they had in common was the call for government 
to intervene in life to put a limit on the power of the big railroads, of the big grain elevator companies, and of the corporate power in general, the banks and so on. What populism traditionally has meant in this country is bring the government in to serve the people, yeah. bring the government in to put limits on what business can do. That's what populism was. Now, if we talk about, in this country, the, you know, the working class, often you hear, oh, we're just talking about white workers or white men, white people, the, working, the white working class. There is no such thing as the white working class. There are white people in the working class, but the working class is multiracial, multigendered, multiethnic, and it is all people who work, no matter if they're white, black, Asian, Native American, doesn't matter. They're all part of that one working class. Now, in this country, if you go back to slavery days, people talk a lot about slavery. But what we need to understand is that it wasn't just slavery. It was racial slavery. When this country was originally founded in the colonies, Labor was brought over from Africa and from England, and it was indentured servants. Yes. It wasn't slavery as we know it, uh, as it developed. Now, what happened was that that population, that population of uh, African and English uh, indentured servants, bonded servants, rebelled together against English rule in Virginia, in the Bacon's Rebellion was the most important one in, 18, mm. in 1676. And the British were just alarmed by this joint rebellion of all workers or all these bonded laborers. And so they created, the British actually created slavery, but not just slavery in general, racial slavery in particular to divide and conquer. And we've lived with that ever since. So you cannot understand race in this country and racial divisions unless you understand how they arose in the context of developing capitalism and a slaveocracy that worked with capital to develop and, and grow this country in its origins. So you can't really address, I don't think, these questions of uh, race without also talking about class and how it's through a united class challenge to the power of capital mm -hmm. that we can begin to recognize how to break down racial divisions so that we no longer tolerate racism and racial oppression and white supremacy. We can't tolerate it because it breaks the unity of working people. And that unity has to be addressed to the whole range of interests that working people have, which must include an end to white supremacy and an end to male chauvinism and, and, and yeah. misogyny. It all ties Those together. are all questions that are tied together out of the power of capital in our society and what we have to do to challenge that power. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, the realities that the fate we have here, you know, that, that the question of power about class. It's not just about income and wealth, but it's about power and the it's the 
divide and conquer is a very effective uh, strategy. It works a lot. Our guest today is Michael Zweig, who's got a new book out, Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. He's Emeritus Professor of Economics and Founding Director for the Center of Working Class Life. Uh, and you know, d dividing it and, and having this uh, culture war is a way, it's very convenient. It works really effectively. You're afraid of the other, that other person who happens to, you know, be gay or, or white and you're not, or, you know, somebody with a hyphenated last name. They, they worked, uh, you know, in the 1920s on making them the enemy, having them the other. Very effective at dividing up uh, the working people uh, based on the fear, the fear of the other. And fear is so important. I want to talk about unstable employment at low wages. Uh, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of student debt, tremendous student debt that Bernie talked about, racial and ethnic marginalization, war, environmental catastrophe. It all ties in. You have a chapter called Connecting the Dots. What basic issue ties these overarching challenges together? Tell us about the Connecting well, the, the Dots. That chapter uh, talks about uh, environmental devastation. It talks about economic uh, crises, recessions, depressions. It talks about uh, war and militarism. And what it finds, or what I try to explain and to explore, is how all of these things arise out of the operations of capitalism. And uh, another element that's also in that chapter is how come everything is a commodity? You know, we, we, we have prisons. Well, they used to be public functions. Well, they're privatized. Yeah. We used to have public schools. They're privatized. We used to have public bus transportation, private bus companies now. Why is everything being made into a commodity, including education? So we come to the question of what unites these different movements, because there are movements that deal with militarism and, 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 and peace. There are movements that deal with changing the privatization of public education, changing the, and getting rid of private prisons and the prison industrial complex. There are movements that deal with poverty. There are movements that deal with racism. Well, we shouldn't have those movements all just siloed off. Yes, they have to have their own independent and specific focus, but they all have to recognize that they're in the same boat. They're all challenging what under, underneath it all is the same power of capital accumulation and of the, of, the, of the capitalist elites and capitalist class in this country. That's where the challenge goes. And that's what uh, also requires a moral reorientation that we are all in this together we are not just fighting for ourselves. We are fighting together with other people against a common social structure that has to be torn down and rebuilt. That's what is the point of connecting the dots. The dots are the individual movements, and the uh, connecting is to see how they all, in their specificity, arise from the same basic underlying dynamics of uh, class warfare and class uh, division in this country between the ruling class, the capitalist class, and the working class in this country. The uh, existential threat of environmental destruction is definitely related because the people, the average person hasn't had 
any say in, in, you know, what happens to the environment. There were various protests, but, uh, you know, if there were more democracy and decision-making, that might not happen, I imagine. And I, I want to bring up... Oh, go ahead. You're about to say something. Well, you know, I was just going to say that the, the way that this environmental devastation comes about in capitalist society, it was production long before there was capitalism, and we didn't have this problem. We had other problems, but we didn't have this one. And this arises in capitalism because for the capitalist, nature is just a collection of resources that you can pull into your production process or not, depending on what you want to do. So if you need iron ore, go get it. If you need tin, go get it. If you need water, go get it. If you need lumber, go get it. But without recognizing that when you take water or lumber or iron ore or whatever it is out of nature, you're disturbing an ecology. You're changing the character of the planet. And that capitalism has no way to address. And that, again, comes to what is a consequence of the way that we do production in the society that we live in. Yes. And, uh, you know, I... I, I, uh, not an economist, that's for sure, but I, I read The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. Very interesting, kind of thick book, I will say. Author Zach Carter made the point that a stable, a more stable economy uh, requires everyone to have a share in the system, be involved in production, as you say, rather than signs of the welfare state or entitlements, programs like Medicaid, food stamps, Public works projects, I would argue, uh, should be perhaps part of the social wage. The social wage—that's a term you use. What do you mean by that? How do you de- what 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 is the social wage, and not just a safety net? And, and what is tell us about the social wage? Well, what does a wage do? The private wage. If you go to work, you get a wage. Why do you get that wage? Because that's what allows you to go and buy things that you need to live. You can buy food, you can pay your rent, you can pay your mortgage, you can do whatever you do in order to live. And that's why people need jobs, and that's why actually people need jobs at a living wage. Poverty wages don't allow people to live and to buy what they need uh, just on the basis of their private employment. So what wages do in the private sector is allow people to get what they need to survive. Now, where did all that stuff come from that they need to survive, the food and the clothing and the shelter and all that stuff? That was all created by working people someplace. Maybe not by the worker who got the wage because they were doing whatever the particular work is in that that company. But somebody else, some other workers made the the, the cheese and some other workers made the bread and some other workers made the, the, the furniture and the housing and so on and so forth. So... What the wage, the private wage allows is for the worker, or for the working class, basically, or the workers, to get back to themselves some part of what they already made. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest belongs to the businesses where it was made. That's the basis of exploitation. That's surplus. That is what workers produce that's beyond what they get back. That's the surplus that belongs to uh, the owners are the capital in capitalist society. Now you have a situation 
where you might find another channel by which workers can get part of what they've made to sustain their living standards. You don't have to rely only on the private wage. You can have what's called sometimes a social wage. So you get health care. Let's say you had universal health care in this country. Well, you need that to live, but you don't get it through your wage. You get it through a social program. Yes. You need education in order to live. You don't get it through a private uh, uh, thing that you pay for out of your wage. You get it out of a social program that gives you education. There are many examples that uh, give working people a part of what they've already created, not through their wage at work, but through a social program. Now, that sometimes those social programs are called the safety net. And I think that there's something a little off with that because what's off is that it makes it seem like, oh, you just get that if you're in trouble, mm. as opposed to you get that because that's what you need and your private wage isn't giving it to you. And so you get it through a social program. You get sustenance. You get part of what the working class has created somewhere, and now you get a claim on it. And that's another, it's just another channel, another way in which, another avenue for by which or through which workers can get a part of what they've already created and leave in what they don't get as surplus that's up to capital to, al uh, to allocate and to use as they see fit. Mm. So, I, you know, I, I, it bugs the heck out of me to see people's health care tied to having a job. Everybody, I mean, it, there's no, doctors hate it. <laughs> uh, it you know, universal health care, it's just so, it's, it's, that, you talk about social wage, there's, everybody has a right to that. It's not like you're deserving or not deserving to have health care health insurance and health care. Everybody has a right to that. You make an interesting point that a steel worker in the United States mill is far more exploited than a peasant laborer in Guatemala. <laughs> People wouldn't generally come to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah. How does that work? Well, again, you have to get back to what is exploitation. Exploitation is the taking of product that one group of people makes by another group of people on the basis of their power to take it. So if you have slave society, for example, so the master has a house. Where'd the house come from? The master didn't build it. The slaves built it. Right. Who built the Capitol building in, the, in, in, in Washington, D.C.? Slaves, slaves built it. Who built the White House? Slaves built it. So the idea that uh, the, the uh, living quarters that the slaves had was given to them by their owners is uh, it's just a lie. Yeah. The slaves made it, and the owners took it. Yeah. Now, the slaves made a whole lot more than what they got. Yes. And the more that they created that they didn't get, that's the surplus. And who got it? The slave owners got it, that group of people. And we have the same kind of a thing in capitalist society, where the working class makes everything. That's where 
Everything comes from now. It's true that the capitalists and the managers and those people, the bankers, they have a role to play. They facilitate production, but they don't actually do the production. They just facilitate it. You know, every team has a coach, and the coach is very important, but the coach doesn't win the game. The team wins the game. The team plays and not the coach. Every child has a parent who helps them out with their homework. But in the end of the day, unless there's cheating going on, the parents aren't doing the homework and getting the grades. The kid is doing the work and getting the grades. And the same thing is true in capitalist production. The working class creates everything. They get back, either through the private wage or social wage, some part of what they made. And then the rest is the surplus that belongs to the owning class, to the capitalist class, to the ruling class, to the people who run the show. And that surplus in an industrial society like our own is much more than the surplus that can be created in a very uh, poor society like Guatemala, where it's mostly rural peasants They don't have a whole lot of productivity. They don't have a whole lot of surplus that they can create beyond what they need to survive. And so the ruling class is, is, you know, yeah, they're the ruling class. And yes, they're rich compared to the peasants. But they have a whole lot more peasants working for them. A whole lot more percentage of the population is actually working and producing than we have a percentage of the population is actually working and producing in this country. And so the steel worker creates much more surplus than the peasant. Huh. Interesting. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's a lot to think about, and and it seems very clear. I'd uh, like to have you in uh, federal government. It'd be nice to be, uh, oh, Minister of Economy, whatever the title <laughs> would be. <laughs> Probably not likely to happen, but we have Joe Biden as, as president right now. Of course, he and the DNC-approved Democrats are not exactly of the left, shall we say. And some always call for a third party. What we we you know, it, it's one thing to understand things and to, and to to protest, but to try to make a difference and it's much better to win. I've been a a candidate and lost, and I've been a candidate and won. It's a lot better to win. It really is a lot better to win. What what about working at the ground level in the Democratic Party? What about your, the idea of of giving up on the Democratic Party and going for a third party? And talk and perhaps you can talk about the two different paths a Democratic Party can take. Well, the social movements are part of the political process of this country. And electoral politics is another part. Those are two pieces of what we might call politics. And I think of of those two, electoral politics and movement building, movement building is the primary and most important piece. Yes. And I think that because it's out of movements that demands get created that are actually the demands of the people. And it's also out of movements that leadership is identified who can go and run for office. So social movements are key, and they're also important because they then hold accountable the people who are elected. Absolutely. But people have to be elected (laughs) because 
if you don't have a revolution, all you have is reform. And we do not have, in my view, a revolutionary moment right now in this country where the working class is going to take power and throw out the capitalist class and put them in the dustbin of history. That's not where we are right now. No. So we are confronted with the necessity of doing electoral politics. Now, to my friends who are resistant about all of that, I like just to point out that if we look historically at periods of time when there have been profound transformations of power relations and power structure in this country, the end of slavery and and reconstruction, the uh, populist movements and the the movements of the early 20th century that had uh, the uh, Food and Drug Administration and put the beginnings of corporate uh, limitations, the New Deal in the 30s and and, and into the 40s, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and early 70s, 50s and 60s. Each one of those resulted in profound changes in the structure of the society that we live in and positive changes. The thing about it is that none of those things happened without some significant section of the ruling class agreeing that it should happen. So that means uh, there's a lesson there. The lesson is that there's no way you're really going to make profound change, even within capitalism. And it's possible. We've seen it in the New Deal. We saw it in the Civil Rights Movement. We saw it in the, in, in, in women's movement. We saw it in, in, in the... A clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, all that stuff was pretty profound. And none of it happened without some significant section of the ruling class agreeing that it was necessary. Now, they agreed because there was a social movement that was demanding it, that was challenging right. for power, and that they had to, that had to be accommodated. Yes. So if you, if you look at uh, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, you have to say... In in the electoral arena, Joe Biden is going to be much more open to, and the people he brings around him are going to be much more open to accommodation to social movements than Donald Trump. There's no doubt about that. And so electoral politics has to find a way within, I would say, because third parties have no significant history in the United States. Right. Even your friend Victor, Eugene Victor Debs, you know, he got a million votes in jail, and you know that, and fifteen cents we get him on the subway. Right. (laughs) You know, the, the the problem is how do you do that kind of politics inside the Democratic Party, which is such a you know a a corporate-driven party, and there I think the answer is. Something like the Progressive Caucus yes. has to be a long-term strategy that people run on that campaign, on that platform, to build that Progressive Caucus out of all these different social movements that we're talking about. And those social movements and that political force has to address itself to the power of capital and challenge that power explicitly and openly. 
and then you can go into eastern Kentucky and you can go into central Indiana and you can go into Jackson, Mississippi, and you can go into uh, northern California, northeastern California or into the into Modesto Valley. You can go into those places and you can challenge and build over time a political force inside the Democratic Party that can challenge for power. And that, I think, is how that uh, that ought to be done. I couldn't agree more. And there's that famous quote, which I don't remember exactly, from FDR talking to uh, A. Philip Randolph about uh, ending segregation and uh, you know helping the uh, Pullman Porters Union. He said, I'm with you. I, I want to support you. Now go out there and make me do it. That's right. And that's ex- exactly how it works. And Michael Kazin, who was a guest on this show, uh, t- had a book called What It Took to Win. And when Democrats, Democrats win when Democrats link up with these movements. And, you know, it, it's what a, candidates want to do. They want to get elected. So how do they get elected? They do, you know, they, they at least li- pretend anyway to listen to the people. And, and that's how, and there's, I swear, being a Democrat myself, there's a lot more people on the traditional, what I consider traditional, working people, Democratic Party, than there is on the corporate Clinton-esque uh, DNC people. They have the, the money and the power, but uh, there's a lot more of us, and votes really count. Well, that's right, and that's uh, what we have to do, is to build those mo- movements, to build the interconnections among them, and to generate the moral and value systems that will sustain them. And that is what the task is. And that's what my book is about, and that's yes. why I'm coming down to uh, Sherlington to uh, Bus Boys and Poets oh, good. Uh, on, uh, on this coming Sunday, the 12th of September. I'm going to be there with Dorian Warren and with Irvin Godoy, uh, a young uh, Starbucks organizer at the, the um, Bus Boys and Poets in Sherlington, in Arlington, Virginia, yep. at uh, 6 o'clock. Uh, I hope people can make it uh, if we're talking to a D.C. area audience. Yes. And then on December 10th, another Sunday, I'm going to be at the other Bus Boys or another Bus Boys and Poets in Tacoma, uh, the Tacoma store, with uh, Nikki Cole and Bill Fletcher Jr. It'd be nice to have so a those conversations. Yeah. should be uh, kind of fun, and everybody's invited. They're free, uh, and uh, come on down and join the discussion. And I, I've actually seen some of the Bus Boys and uh, Poets discussion on YouTube. I swear, I think I have. It's or maybe it's I don't know C-SPAN something like that. But uh, yeah, it's. You got to keep going here. This is some important stuff that you're talking about here, and it's it's much better to win. It really is, and we can do it. We can't give up. We can't afford to just give up and let the far right wackos have it. I suppose I had some judgment in there, but uh, we can do it. We really can do it. And it, it, it's there's some clear thinking, clear understanding of how it all works, and uh, it's very interesting uh, stuff to talk about. And uh, Michael Zweig, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. His new book is Class, Race, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, good luck to us all. To us all, indeed. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Bye.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.